So we are in John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at two different healings today. And one of the things, last Sunday uh, in my message, I talked a little bit about how Jesus knows what we're going through because he's been through it, right? You know, he humbled himself to become a human. He, he knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to grieve. Anything that you experience, he's experienced that. And so we have somebody that we can go to that knows what we're going through. Well, this morning as we look at this, uh, I, I want to, before we actually get into the passage, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus would never ask you to do anything he hasn't already done. Okay? And uh, I want to I look at something real quick. Uh, Acts 1.8. Everybody recognize this? What do we call this? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. Okay? And I want you to watch this now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem... Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. Okay? Did Jesus do that? Absolutely. I want you to think about where we've been in John. Okay? When we, when we talked in chapter 3, there was a man by the name of Nicodemus, and he was a leader of the Jews. And where did he live? In Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus started his ministry. He started it in Jerusalem. And he preached there. And many people were getting saved. And then he moved out into Judea. And we saw that he was baptizing out uh, in Judea. He was preaching out in Judea. And he was ministering to those people. And then last week, where did he have to go? Samaritan. He had to go to Samaria because there was a woman there that needed to know about the Messiah. And so he goes there and he stays for two days and all of these Samaritans, they get saved. Now one of the, what, so what do we have left? The remotest parts of the earth. Most people would call these, because all these first three, they all had a form of Judaism. They all were Israelites of some sort. Even though the people in Samaria had intermarried, they were still part of the Jewish nation. Now we get to the remotest parts of the world, and most of the time we call those Gentiles. And we're going to see Jesus perform his first healing this morning to a Roman, a Roman Nobleman. So let's turn to John chapter 4 and uh, let's read a few verses, two verses to start out with <coughs> as we look at Jesus as he ministers outside of these first three that we saw today. And after two days he went forth from there into Galilee for Jesus himself testified that a prophet had no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him 
having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And I want to stop there for just a second. Because remember where Jesus was and what he was celebrating. He was celebrating the Passover. People would have come from all over the place to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then they would have gone, a lot of them would have gone home, especially the folks who were in walking distance, so to speak. Galilee, uh, within a couple days walk of Jerusalem, they would have gone back home. And they would have been talking because what, you know, did you see what happened in the temple? That Jesus guy, he drove all the animals out. He tipped over the tables. He was preaching with power. Did you see that? Did you see the blind man that got healed? I, I talked to a guy that was deaf. And now he can hear and speak. They were talking about all the things that Jesus did. And you know, the world is the same thing. The world seeks the spectacular. Right? We want to be in the middle of the action. But Jesus provides the sacred. You say, what? The world wants to see the healings. The world wants to see, uh, see thousands of people together. But Jesus provides a sacred. Now, what do I mean by that? There is nothing more sacred than salvation. There is nothing more sacred than the forgiveness that takes place at the foot of the cross. When somebody comes to Jesus with their life messed up and ruined and they come and they say, forgive me, I am a sinner and you are the only remedy. Jesus provides that. But see, the, the Galileans, they, were, they wanted the spectacular. You did it. You did it down here. At Jerusalem, you did it in Judea. We saw you baptizing down by the river and people were getting healed. Give that to us. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, oh, you guys are missing the picture. It's only when the Samaritan woman realized that Jesus knew her sin and she said, I'm sorry. I need you. I don't need the water anymore. I need the Savior. And Jesus provides the sacred. And I really wish we as, uh, the, we as the church would understand that that's really what you know, Jesus wants. Jesus doesn't want a big production. He doesn't want you know, Madison Square Garden filled so that we can go there and feel good about ourselves. He wants people to come to him. And you, as we discovered last week, you have to come on your own. It's not a group thing. You come to Jesus on your own. Well, let's look at this first healing. John 4, 46 
through 54. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. And so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. And this again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Wow. Now, who was this nobleman? Who was he? It says that he was from Capernaum. Now, this is, I want you to understand how, how this fits in. Capernaum was what, a place called the Via Marsis, the way of the sea. And there was a road that went all the way from down in, in Egypt, and it came up and it stopped there was a stop on this road in Capernaum. And then it would go on up to Damascus of Syria. It was a main trading route. And it was, it was ruled over by Herod Antipas. So who was Herod Antipas? He's the same guy who killed John the Baptist. That's the kind of guy he was. He was actually the son of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died, he passed the three areas into the hands of his sons. And that was, Capernaum was run by Herod Antipas. He was, a, and, and he was a greedy man. He would have had, he would have said, okay, if you're coming through Capernaum, matter of fact, they had a tax in Capernaum. If you wanted to sell your fish, because that was the big, you know, Sea of Galilee, that was what their big deal was. They would, they would catch fish and they would sell it. You had to pay the tax. John, John and James were fishermen. Andrew and Paul were fishermen. They knew well about this tax. That's why they lived over in Bethsaida. But if they wanted to sell their, their goods in the market in Capernaum, they had to pay the tax to Herod Antipas. And this ruler, this royal nobleman, as he's called, would have been somebody who was sent there by Herod, probably a Roman, obviously a Gentile, and he was sent there to control what happened in Capernaum, gather the taxes, make sure people did what they were told to do. And he's hearing about this Jesus. 
And he says, I'm going to go see him. And I'm guessing that the fact that he didn't take his son with him, the son was probably too sick. He said he was near death. It's a 16-mile trip. Now, we think of that as nothing, right? We jump in our car, we run to Salem, or we, you know, 16, how, how long does it take you to walk 16 miles? Uh, I don't know, I've never done it, right? <laughs> four hours for Michael, okay, four days for the rest of it. Yeah, 16 miles. And what? He would have had to carry his son. His son, and he would have had to go slow enough so that you're not, uh, so that you're not hurting him, right? I remember I broke my leg one time, and uh, I was at home, and I, and I said, uh, we need to go to the hospital. And, of course, I'm like, you know, hurry up. Well, I, it was hurry up until we went over the first speed bump. <laughs> slow down. Right? Go slow. That hurt. So he said, I'm going to leave my son at home, and I'm going to go get Jesus because he's what? He's a royal official. I'm going to go get this Jesus. I'm going to tell him, you need to come down and heal my son. And so he makes a 16-mile trip, and he says, he says, Jesus, you need to come. And Jesus looks at him in verse 48, and he says, unless you people, I, I like that. You, you, ever, you ever been, unless you people, right? Jesus, unless you people See signs and wonders you simply will not believe. What was Jesus saying there? He says, you have a bigger problem than your son. You need a savior. You don't realize that because all you're looking at is the exterior. All you're looking at is, I want my son to be healed. He wasn't looking at the eternal picture. And then Jesus says in verse 50, Go, your son lives. Now what had he been doing? Come with me. Come with me. You need to come and touch my son and heal him. That's what he wanted. And all of a sudden Jesus says, Go, your son's healed. Now, is he in a quandary? Did he have a preconceived idea of how his son would be healed? Well, everybody else, Jesus touched them and they got healed. And, and do I hang out here and, com, and com, com, continue to beg him to come? But he says, no. What, what does it say? He believed and went on his way. Well, one of the things I, I want you to understand is Jesus chooses to heal in his own way. We, we get this preconceived idea of how Jesus heals people. And we say, I want to be healed that way. I want to have the miraculous healing. And we have people in this church that have been healed miraculously and it is a testimony to God that God heals that way but not everyone is healed that way 
A matter of fact, probably the most famous one was Paul. Paul asked three times, God, heal me of what's happening in my body, this thorn in the flesh. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, I am strong. And God chose not to heal Paul. He says, Paul, I want to heal you. But I'm going to heal you when you get to heaven. Because I'm working through you in such a mighty way that if I healed you now, I'm not sure that you could handle that. (laughs) In Luke chapter 7, there's a story of another man from Capernaum. He was a centurion. And he sent to Jesus and he said, Jesus, if you will speak the word, my servant will be healed. And he sent friends, Jewish friends of his, to go and see Jesus and said, just tell Jesus that I have a servant that needs to be healed. And and Jesus said, oh, I'll go see him. Because they they convinced him he was a devout man. He said, this guy helps pay for our synagogue. He He loves the Jewish people. And Jesus said, yeah, okay, I'll go down and see him. And he got halfway there. And, and this centurion, this Roman centurion, sent his, some more of his people out. And he says, tell Jesus, you don't have to come here. You are so powerful. He said, I'm a man who orders people around. I say, this one, go over here. And they go. I tell this one to do this. And he says, he, he said, you tell Jesus, all he has to do is speak the word. And my servant will be healed. I'm wondering if maybe he had heard the story from the nobleman. I was all the way in Cana, and Jesus said, go, your son lives, and Jesus healed him. And that Roman soldier said, speak the word, and Jesus said, in all of Israel, there's no one who has faith like this, and he healed him without ever touching him, without ever even getting into the house. Well, it's amazing that God chooses how he heals. And, and, and folks, sometimes we don't know how he's going to do it. We just have to say, okay, God, here we are. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a few minutes. But I want you to know this, what else happened. Anytime Jesus heals... It brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. What happened after the healing? He, got, he was on the way back. He met his servants were so excited. They were headed to Cana and on the road. They meet in the middle. And he says, your son's been healed. What time did it happen? Oh, I love it when that, goes, when that happens. There's, there have been times I have had prayer warriors in my life and, and, and it is, we are so connected through, through, through God that something will happen. They'll say, what was going on? Phyllis Cass loved the lady. She, she knew me from a teenager. And when I was a cop, 
and I would see her occasionally. She said, what was going on Thursday at 2 o'clock in the morning? And I'd have to think back. And, and you know, it'd be, I was in a pursuit. Or I was, you know, in a, in a dangerous situation. She said, God woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning and had me pray for you. You see, there's a connection. And when we, when we put those things together, he said, Why, when was it, when? He said, the seventh hour. The seventh hour. That was when Jesus said, go, he's healed. There is no coincidence with God. He said, be healed. And it brings glory to God. What happened when he got home? He said, the father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus said, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. You see, when God begins to work, when God does things like this, it spreads. It, you can't contain it. He, he believed because he knew exactly what happened. He stood there with Jesus. And Jesus said, go. And he did. He believed. He put it into action. He had to go back to the house. And then all of his family, all, they all began to get saved. Because you can't deny when God does something like that. Well, there's another healing that's going to take place. In uh, John 5 through 1 through 4, Jesus goes and, and we'll read 1 through 4, and we've got to, we're going to work on a few things before we get to the healing itself. And after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jew, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which they were afflicted. So I want to stop there and we're going to talk about two things. One, when this was. Now we really don't know. It says he went down to a feast. Now there were, uh, Scott, how many feasts are there that the Jews, there's seven, okay? And then there's the big three, right? The big three. Scott, if you ever want to talk about Jewish tradition, talk to Scott. So there were seven of them, but there were three big ones. Passover, 50 days later there was Pentecost, and then there was the Feast of the Booths, okay, where they would come down uh, and celebrate. And, they, and that's when the big three, so when was this? Well, we really don't know. We know that he was just in Jerusalem at, at, at the Passover. So it could have been as little as 50 days. Or it could have been as long as a year. Now why, why is that important? Because 
What is John doing? Remember? Go back to the first message I gave you. John is filling in the blanks. Now, if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see a lot of examples of what God was doing during this time, what he was doing during his Galilean ministry. And you're going to see he's over here healing people. He's over here. He's feeding 5,000. He's feeding 4,000. What is he doing? And so whether it's at 50 days, which is the shortest time, it could have been, but it could have been as much as a year. Now, the other thing that I want to address is this. How many of you were looking in your Bibles and say, you read a whole lot more words than I did? Anybody? Anybody? A couple of you, right? Okay. And most of the rest of you, you probably said, well, what's this deal with this parentheses in the last half of verse 3 all the way through verse 4? The most of you will have a parenthesis in there, and then there's going to be a little footnote down at the bottom. And it says, earlier manuscripts don't have this. Okay? Now, folks, I, I don't want you to think that, oh, wow, the Bible has a mistake in it. What it is, is I want you to, uh, we need to understand how the Bible was generated, right? So the book of John was a letter, right? It was, he was writing this out and he was sending it to folks so they would understand they wanted him to, to fill in the blanks for us. And so he's writing this letter. And this particular one was written, John was written probably at the end of his life, somewhere around 90-something A.D. He's writing this letter out and he's filling in the blanks. So he ships this letter off, and it goes to a church. Now, what does that church do? Well, they hire a scribe, and they take that letter, and he says, I want to send this letter to five different churches. So the scribe writes out, he copies it word for word, and writes it out, and sends it off. It's all handwritten, right? Well, this goes on literally for centuries. And as the centuries go by... What happens to those beautiful letters, handwritten letters? You, you, you ever go through grandma and grandpa's or great grandpa's, you know, and, you, and the letters, and you pick them up, and what happens? They fall apart. And so as the church fathers are putting together the, the scriptures, putting together John, they find a fragment here and a fragment there. And they say, okay, so we, put, we get it all together. And somewhere along the lines, one of the scribes most likely said, you know, the portico's gone. Nobody understands what was happening back then. So he put a little parentheses in there and he said, this is what was going on at the Pool of Bethesda. This is what they were honoring the fact that, that there was this belief that angels stirred up the water and people came down. So I put that in there. And then all of a sudden, years, 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 years go by and the parentheses come out of there. Well, the church fathers established the canon of scripture and all of a sudden manuscripts show up from 
earlier in the first and second century. Somebody, remember when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found? Some of you are old enough to remember that. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in our century. And lo and behold, opens up the eyes, says, wait a second, that's not in the original. Well, yeah, the interesting part is the church fathers didn't have a problem with that. The church fathers said, number one, it doesn't have anything, it doesn't have anything to do with any of our basic theologies. It is just an explanation of what these people were experiencing at the time. I could go and get the book, uh, uh, any, any number of writings by Josephus, and he would have talked about this. So, so it's that little explanation. So don't get, when you see these, and they happen, they don't happen very often, but when you see these, we need to be able to say, you know, God, not only did he speak through John, but it's okay to take this little parenthesis and say, it's just an explanation of what was happening at the pool of Bethesda. Okay, so don't let this shake your faith and say the Bible is wrong. It is God's inspired word, but it has also come through translation into our language, and there's many, many factors that are taken into place to get to where we are. It is trustworthy. So don't get hung up on the parentheses. So let's go on to five through nine. And let's see what this healing's all about. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. 38 years waiting for something that had this mythical whatever it was, the stirring of the waters. Did people get healed? I'm guessing they did. Why else would people hang out there? And when Jesus came and asked him, I want you to notice, this man didn't recognize who Jesus was. He didn't say, Jesus, heal me. I've heard about you. Jesus instigated this healing. Jesus was the one who said, I'm going to heal you. Do you want to get well? Well, yeah. I want to get well. But what was he asking of Jesus? Will you hang out with me and when the water stirs? Drag me down into the water before everybody else so I can be healed? He had no idea who he was talking to. 
He was talking to the creator of the universe. He was talking to the one who made his body. He was talking to the one who knew exactly what was going on. Most people looked at him and said, you're a lost cause. 38 years you've been hanging out here to be healed, and you can't get healed. But Jesus looked at him, and he had compassion. He said, man, do you want to get well? And did you know that Jesus asked that question of us? Do you want to get well? You see, we have all different kinds of problems, don't we? And Jesus is asking you, do you want to get well? Are you tired of living in a broken relationship? What does Jesus say? Do you want your relationship healed? You may be in the middle of addiction, and addiction can be all different kinds of things, folks. It doesn't have to be somebody with a needle in their arm or, or drugs up their nose. We can be have all kinds of, and you know what Jesus says to you? What? Do you want to get well? Jesus is asking that question. <laughs> Do you need an attitude adjustment? What does Jesus say? Do you want to get well? Is having a bad attitude something that Jesus can fix? Oh, absolutely. You see, Jesus comes to us in whatever ever place we are. I'm going to get a little bit of meddling going on here. You know, preachers do that every once in a while. Have you been hurt by a brother or sister in Christ? Do what? Do you want to get well? Bitterness will eat you apart. I have seen so many Christians who say, I can't go to church because I've been hurt. And Jesus says what? He says, where two or more are gathered together, there I'm in their midst. He says, that's the, the body of Christ is where, is where you function. That's where you use your gift. That's where God brings us together. And, the, and somebody who has said, I've been hurt and I can't go to church, they need to be healed. And Jesus asks each one of us, do you want to get well? And sometimes we say, yeah, I do, but I want to get well this way. God, would you take that person out of the church so I can go back? I've heard people pray that. God, heal this way. I want the miraculous healing that they had. And God says, no, you're not going to get that. Because that's not what you need. That's what they needed. I want you to, I want to be careful. Don't compare what God has done for you with what he has or will do for somebody else. You see, we can say, I got healed this way. This is what you have to do. This is the three steps to being healed from bitterness. A, B, and C. God may not work A, B, and C in their life. 
You see, we can compare what happened with us. And, and matter of fact, there's a lot of people who write some really good books about this is what you need to do. And, and they may be spot on for some people, but there are times when God says, this is the way I'm going to heal, and it's going to be, it's going to blow your mind. It will be so over and above anything you can think of. And God says, I'm going to heal you. He looked down at this man who for 38 years, and I want you to imagine what he looked like. What did his legs look like? You ever seen anybody who's been paralyzed from the waist down? What do their legs look like? They're just little sticks. I mean, I had a cast. I had my Achilles tendon repaired, and that was back in the day when they gave you a a thigh-high cast for six weeks. And I remember after six weeks, I looked down at my legs, and I went, what in the world happened? 38 years. Even if, even if whatever the underlying problem was, was healed, you would look at those legs and say, he couldn't even stand up. But when God heals, how does he heal? Oh, he heals completely. He said, get up. Not, not, not just get up. He said, get up and walk. And then what do you tell him to do? Carry your pallet. Wrap those blankets up. Throw them over your shoulder and head on home. You see, when God heals, it requires obedience. When God heals, you know, if, he's heal, if he wants to heal you of a bitter spirit, it's going to take obedience. God's going to say, you need to go back. You need to go back to that person. You need to apologize. Or you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to sit down and make it right. Healing requires obedience for each one of us. Well, I want to, we're going to finish up with, uh, with the aftermath, verses 10 through 16. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them and said, He who made me well was the one who said, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is, who is this that you say, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while they were, there was a crowd at that place. And afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working I mean, this poor guy, this, this poor guy, what are you doing carrying your pallet? He says, I'm walking after 38 years. I, you see, the, the, the religious people got their focus on the wrong thing, didn't they? Well, the rules say you don't carry your pallet on, on Sunday. Well, this guy said, I mean, he said, this guy said to carry it. 
And he healed me, so. <laughs> he, but where does he go? He goes to the temple. He goes because the Jewish people were required to go to the temple to be clean. I mean, if you look through Leviticus, if, if you have this, you, you, know, you go to the temple, you show yourself to the priest, and the priest says, yeah, you're healed. And so he, he did what he was supposed to. He went to the temple. He's like going, I'm healed. Come take a look. You guys, you guys were by the pool of Bethesda. You know that I was crippled, and here I am healed. I want to certify this thing. And, and of course, the, 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 the rulers, the guys that made up all these great rules, right? They're like going, yeah, no, no, this can't be right. You can't, he told you to carry your pallet. Come on. And Jesus sneaks into the temple. He, he, he finds this guy. And what does he tell him? Go and sin no more. You know, when Jesus, when G, every time Jesus, you look at this, as you're reading through these miracles, when Jesus heals somebody, whether it's physical or whether it's moral. Remember the lady who was brought in adultery? What did he tell her? Who condemns you? If they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's what he tells this guy. Now I don't know whether sin was a cause of his problem in the first place, but he says, you go and sin no more so you don't fall into the same problem again. Go. And sin no more. You see, when we have healing, healing requires change. We have to change our attitude. We have to change who we give glory to. We have to change our lives. Because once Jesus heals you, you're never the same. I mean, I, I can imagine this, this guy walking back into his family... And then God says, hey, you're healed. Look at this. I can walk. I've experienced healing in my life. I, 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 could, I could no more explain it to you what happened, but I know I've watched the doctors shake their head. There is no answer. You can look at the x-rays. You can talk to the people who were there. And God says, I spared you for a reason. I spared you because I have use for you. I'm going to send you places you will never know. When I was 23 years old, driving home to campus, I was living, at, uh, I was back east at Liberty University. I was driving home one night at 10 minutes to 10. 10 o'clock was curfew. It was Wednesday night. That was Bible study night for all of the dormitories on campus. I had a, I had a Toyota station wagon and at 9.45 the GE plant where they made mobile radios a mile from campus was getting out. 
A man in a Ford four-wheel drive pickup ran the stop sign right in front of me. I had my two roommates with me, one in the front seat next to me and one in the back seat. We collided on the front wheel of that vehicle, shoved the axle out the other side. As being a very wise 23-year-old, I was not wearing my seatbelt. My face went through the windshield. My right shoulder buckled the dash, and my right knee tore the gear shift out of the transmission. My roommates were able to duck down, and neither one of them were injured. To get me out of the car... They literally had to cut out the back hatch and take me out the back. Loaded me into the ambulance, loaded my two friends right next to me. They, they needed to be evaluated at the hospital because of how horrific the crash was. I was unconscious from the moment that we had the collision. I fell over in my roommate's lap and freaked him out. Not moving, barely breathing. Bandaged my head, put me on a backboard, bandaged my leg to stop the bleeding, hauled me out of the back of that car, put me in the back of the ambulance. It's about a 10-minute ride to Lynchburg General Hospital. The paramedic, my two roommates are sitting right next to me. I'm on the gurney. The paramedic leans through the doorway to the front, and he says, you can slow down. This kid's not going to make it. They brought me into the ER. They called the... Dean's of, dean of students says, you got a student here. Uh, you need to call his parents. He's not going to make it. My mom and daddy were here in Oregon. It's now 7.30 p.m. in Oregon. They made the call. Pray. We're at the hospital with your son. He's not expected to live. And they began to pray. At, at 10.30 on campus, every single dorm began to pray. God, we need healing. They, they suspected that I had a massive brain injury. They started taking x-rays. I had a laceration that went from here to here. My, my right ear was torn off from here to here. They said they started taking x-rays. Nothing's broken. His skull is intact. My doctor started, he was a thoracic surgeon, started stitching up my head. He was great. <laughs> he did a really good job. Can you see it? Right? It goes here to here. 40 stitches. Sewed my ear back on. He said the weirdest thing was I started singing gospel songs in the middle uh, of him sewing me back up. The next day, they had put me in a room. I woke up about 2 in the morning. They put me in a room, and the, and the uh, Virginia State Trooper walked into my room. He said, I came down here to get your death certificate to attach to my report because I knew there was no way you would have you made it. I don't know what happened between the time that my body was mangled in that car and I woke up in the hospital. But I do know this. God 
was not done with me yet. Amen. That's a pretty dramatic story. But I got news for you. God wants to heal whatever you have, whatever hurts you have, whatever's going on in your life. God wants to heal. And he heals in different ways. Sometimes he heals with the miraculous. Sometimes he heals through medical. And I've had that happen in my life too. God has given me great doctors over the years that have done great work. But the ultimate healing is when we get to heaven. The ultimate healing takes place when when we arrive in heaven and Jesus says, you're done. I'm going to give you a new body. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hurt, no more disease. The cancer is going to be gone. That limp's going to be gone. That arthritis is going to be gone. Amen. Amen. And it happens because of Jesus. When Jesus intercedes, maybe you came here this morning and you went, I just showed up in this church because I didn't have any place else to go. And God's saying, that's all right. You've come to the right place because I'm the healer. He did it on the cross. You see, when he said, my body is broken for who? My body's broken for you. I'm going to take all of that hurt, all of that pain. I'm going to take it on myself. He said, my blood is spilt for you. For the remission of sin. All of that shame, all of that hurt, all of that anguish from from being emotionally broke or spiritually broke. He said, I'm taking that all on me. All you have to do is come to the cross and ask for the free gift.